Welcome to Working Media with Rafael Bracero. Welcome to a new episode of Working Media with Rafael Bracero. Today's guest, a longtime friend and colleague, Nikki Memori. Nikki is a marketing director at Sargento Foods, which is hiring, by the way, uh, and she'll tell you more about that. She's also a keynote speaker, a brand innovator, and a consultant. As a matter of fact, we actually consulted together back in the day. It's great to have you on the show, Nikki. How are you doing? Good morning, Rafa. How are you? I'm thrilled to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, like you mentioned, I'm working for Sargento now, and I'm actually coming to you live this morning from Plymouth, Wisconsin, which is the cheese capital of the world. For those who aren't familiar with the company, Sargento is most known for bringing people together with real natural food. It's, you know, it's a third generation family owned company known for cheese that really does hire the best people and treat them like family. And that's why I'm so excited that we're hiring right now, including for roles in the marketing department. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, and, and a uh, great company, a uh, great brand uh, and great culture. So uh, definitely, uh, you know, definitely take advantage of that if you're interested. And we'll have a link to that, to those opportunities on the description of this particular podcast when we put it out. But what I wanted to do first was just kind of start talking a little bit about um, how we started in the industry and how we met. So do you want to start us off? Sure. Happy to. Um, but I have to tell you, it's several years back. So <laughs> I have to jog all of my memories. I'm still I in my twenties. I don't know. It's oh. like, it's, it's, I, don't, I, I don't count. I was, number. You know, Rafa, I was actually thinking how many years it's been. I think it's been almost 15 years since we first met. I can't wow. believe all the time has passed. But um, we, you know, we first met during my first assignment at PNG in Folders Coffee, and I had I had just moved after grad school from St. Louis to Cincinnati to work for PNG, and we were both working in day to day base business roles for Folders, which of course was one of their billion dollar brands, and. You know, I, I remember being there. I remember my desk being in front of the coffee lab. It was, you know, for me, it was a really fun first experience. And I remember having the chance to work on um, in-market plans for Folgers pink can. I don't know if you remember that one. I do. I do. Um, but the, the pink can was a cause marketing skew supporting breast cancer awareness. And so that was a really fun first project to work on. And I also remember working on two projects with you, Rafa, I don't know if you remember either of these, but I remember working on a multicultural marketing project for instant coffee. And then I remember working together on our ongoing consumption forecast, which I, you know, I still remember to this day, trying to meet the high standard of plus or minus 2% versus <laughs> what, what we had forecasted, which <laughs> I remember those days just trying to compare and contrast what you know, what our expectations were. But I do remember we were just absolutely crushing the competition. We had a 40 share of the at-home ground coffee market. And at the time, I think even Maxwell House had come out with a plastic canister, to, which was kind of copying our canister. And they were still losing share. We were still beating them and they were outspending us in marketing. So so I think we must have been doing something right, Mickey, right? <laughs> Well, I think we were definitely doing something right. You know, I think the other dynamic that was happening in the market is Starbucks had just emerged as an outside player. And we were viewing competition really, to your point, Rafa, as Maxwell House. And then suddenly Starbucks comes in and we have this out-of-home coffee experience, which redefined how we thought about competition. So 
you know, very interesting time to work in coffee. Absolutely. And I recall, I mean, I think P&G was very much flexing <laughs> its beauty brand focus. And at the time, they were also divesting a lot of the food and beverage. They had already sold Pringles and, and some other brands. And I think this one was probably the last vestige of, of food and beverage within P&G. And, and when they sold it, I, if I recall correctly, I don't know, it's, it's a long time ago, but I still remember this for some reason. <laughs> it was like, we, our, our annual revenue was about 1.5 billion. We sold it for 3 billion to Smuckers with a, in a reverse merger of sorts, uh, like, a, like a stock swap, right? So we got a, a P&G got a bunch of Smucker stock because they couldn't actually, they were big. The, the folders one was bigger than Smuckers itself. <laughs> That's how big this brand was. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think they did really well. I think there was a scare at the, you're absolutely right about this, the Starbucks stuff. Everybody was concerned that, oh, at home coffee is going to die. But, uh, you know, I think over time that proved that that was not necessarily the case. Yeah. You, first of all, you have a really good memory. Uh <laughs> Because I remember, I mean, remember living through, uh, you know, a lot of the conversations about, about Smuckers, but unfortunately I don't remember the details. It was several years ago. You have a really great memory. It, it's like, like a, like an, uh, like a steel trap, at least for those <laughs> six. <laughs> but if I need to remember where my keys are, then that's a different story. <laughs> well, you know, that was, like I said, about 15 years ago, but then later we had the chance to work together again in a different capacity, like you you mentioned at the beginning, and that was consulting for startups. So it's, you know, it was, it was great to meet you back then. It was, you know, it's great to continue working with you over the course of my career. And it's, gosh, it's just great to talk to you today. I'm so excited to have you here. You're, you know, really, really, truly a friend. I mean, and and I really enjoyed working in consulting and uh, kind of pairing up on some of these projects uh, that that we worked on. I mean, I think even sometimes the clients were were not not. Uh, <laughs> sometimes they were great. Sometimes they were uh, less than great. But I think working with you uh, made the experience uh, really fun. So oh, uh, thank you. I have good fun memories of. I feel the exact same way. Oh, that's very sweet of you. <laughs> so then let's talk a little bit about that. So you're going from an in-house role, right? And then uh, you go into consulting. Uh, tell, tell us uh, what the thought process was and, and the considerations and your experience in, in doing that. Um, you know, I'm wondering maybe if I should just talk about my career path first, because first of all, it's been a pretty colorful one. And that may, <laughs> that may give some insight into- Absolutely some of the choices that I made. And then I can talk a little bit more about consulting versus working for some of the CPGs that I've been doing. But, you know, I actually started my career in college working as an in-store promo girl. And so I was doing job demos for brands like Swiffer and Febreze in store. And after I graduated, I worked first in visual merchandising for May Company, which is now part of Macy's Federated doing visual displays. And then I ran a talent agency and they, there I was, you know, I was booking commercial talent for TV commercials, print ads, also at the time working on reality show casting, which was new at that time and had the chance to help with casting for shows like American Idol and Apprentice and did a brief stint as a political strategist. Now, all of that was before I went back to get my MBA. So even pre-MBA, was it was pretty colorful. And I had spent a lot of time really marketing people, which definitely came with its challenges and thought, gosh, you know, based on my early experience as a product promo girl, 
that marketing products might be a better option for me. Uh, you know, products aren't going to call you in the, in the middle of the night with an urgent request. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so post B-School, I, I really focused my career on consumer products. I first had an internship with Build-A-Bear Workshop, and then I worked in marketing for CPG, um, both in base business roles and innovation. And I was at first P&G, in Cincinnati, where we met. Then I worked at Church and Dwight on the East Coast. I was at L'Oreal. I then moved uh, to Chicago, and that's where I was doing the innovation consulting, uh, running my own consulting shop called Sprout Innovation. Did that for a bit and transitioned back into CPG to work at RB on the East Coast. And, and most recently, Moved again to Wisconsin, where here I am at Sargento. So over the course of my career, you know, I've been very fortunate to work on some of the best consumer brands in the industry. And in totality, I think I've touched more than 30 consumer brands across 15 categories. So it's, you know, it, it's been very colorful. I've had a lot of different experiences, you know, and to your point, Rafa, about why I was doing consulting and what was that transition like, because I have had all these different experiences I thought that would be something unique I could bring to the table as a consultant where I could help connect the dots across industries and brands and bring that knowledge to companies that, um, you know, needed help developing new products or uh, their marketing plans. And then to your original question about transitioning from consulting back into CPG, you know, I really missed having a work family. Consulting was... A lot of fun. And I had that, you know, I had the chance to work with some of my former colleagues, which was an amazing experience, but I really missed having a work family. And that's what really drove me back to working in CPG. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's a uh, consulting can be a, a very solitary pursuit. <laughs> that's true. Yes, absolutely. Great. So, yeah. So you mentioned working in both uh, base business and innovations. Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between those? Sure. Essentially, innovation is really about identifying and generating new ideas. It's usually new product ideas. And base business is primarily focused on managing the in-market performance of a brand and really building the brand through advertising. So, you know, I can give a couple of examples of this just to bring it to life a bit more. For innovation, the process usually starts by first identifying trends or consumer insights, sometimes both. And when I think about my personal experience, for instance, when I was working at L'Oreal, we were able to identify first a trend, which was the rise of water-based products in other markets. And we started digging into that a bit, you know, what was happening? Was this happening in the U.S.? Also, we spoke to consumers and did some research, especially with the millennials. And we saw through that research, there was a new story emerging, really where consumers we're craving hydration in their everyday lives. So, you know, kind of those two nuggets we put together, we took the trend, we took the insight, put them together, brainstormed around how this could come to life within skincare, and then helped us create product concepts, um, you know, which for, for those who may not know what a product concept is, it's really a story that shares the benefit and the reason to believe. And we brought those to life through compelling visuals. We tested them. Um, you know, once we had a concept that tested well, we worked with R&D to develop the formula. We worked on packaging and financials. We worked on our launch timeline. So that was really our process on 
on innovation at L'Oreal. So, so let's stay with that for for a bit. So just kind of walking through that uh, that line uh, in terms of the L'Oreal uh, concept testing. So so you're testing both copy and uh, or the, the 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 language, right? But then also some some visual stimulus for for the audience. And tell us how that was done. Uh, was it uh, with panels? Was it uh, did you do it directly? Did you hire an agency to do that for you? Uh, walk us through that, and then also any sort of uh, uh, the 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 metrics and the testing that you did on the back end, uh, more quantitative. Talk a little bit about that, uh, just to so they kind of get a, a feel of, of the journey to to get from from a concept to then a product that would actually you know be in a store. Sure. So every company has their own approach to testing new innovation, new product ideas. Some companies are, are more purist where they only want to test words on a page. And you, you know, you literally have three lines. You have your insight, your benefit, and your RTB written out. And that goes into a standard methodology like, like a basis to, to test that. L'Oreal was a bit different because they wanted their concepts to be closer to how it would actually be executed in market. So it was a combination of the, you know, the words on a page concept story, but also visuals that could help bring that to life. So we had an image of what the potential package could look like. We had a couple of images to cue the idea of hydration. So consumers not only would read the story, but visually they were able to understand instantly what the story was about. And we put that into, you know, again, a standardized test. We, uh, you know, we put it into bases and we had certain benchmarks that we had to meet in order for it to be a qualifying concept. And so um, we would get the results back and then see after it was tested, how did we perform versus those benchmarks? And only if we would meet or exceed those benchmarks did the concept move forward. And just for the folks that are not familiar with bases and what those benchmarks are, um, you know, from I mean, this is some time ago, so you might not recall it. But what what uh, what were the benchmarks uh, that that you were using for that? Was it uh, industry benchmarks? Was it uh, internal L'Oreal benchmarks, or was it just like a two top box score type of of approach? Uh, just uh, give give a little bit of flavor for that. To be honest, I don't remember our specific benchmark for L'Oreal, but you know the benchmark typically varies by company. Most companies that I've worked at have gravitated toward top two box as um, you know as the measure of success, and that's usually against a database of um, either industry concepts. It's usually not only brand concepts. You're usually not just testing against yourself. You're just testing against yourself versus something else. So it's either you versus others in your category, or sometimes it's cross category. So you can just see how it's testing with consumers overall versus all of the other categories that are in the database. Great. So okay. So that's basis one. Right, which is the concept testing, and then you know you already said that that uh, it it met and exceeded that that uh, top two box score. So uh, did you have to do a basis two for this, or or did you uh, you know where where did the project go right after that? Yeah, basis two is typically the volumetric portion when you are looking at forecasting. When you say, okay, we know this this concept is doing well, it's resonating with consumers, it's meeting our initial benchmark. Great, but how big is it going to be? And how much are we going to be able to amplify it in market? And how does it really integrate into our operations plan? And that's typically the point where projects start to transition to a base business role. And um, 
the, you know, the basis two really helps you predict what that volume may be. And with basis two, you're, and just, um, just to make sure that, that we're, everybody's tracking, we're, we're testing final product, final, final packaging of product, right? But it's, it's not, is it testing also the product itself, the efficacy of the product, or is it just literally the, the, the final visual of that packaging uh, and maybe the, the bottle or whatnot. So how, how does that, or I mean, or does that vary, I guess? It does vary by company. At the very least, you're typically testing any sort of finalized concept. You know, maybe, maybe you've had some tweaks to language or claims based on conversations with legal or regulatory. So you're really having the final language that consumers would see. The same with the packaging and visuals. You may have had some tweaks. Maybe the shape has changed. Maybe you realized you weren't able to do that. You know, the dream package because of cost implications. And so you revised. And so you want to show the latest thinking on your packaging and also visuals that you may bring that to life. You'll typically have your best case on your marketing plan. So when you think through how it will come to life in market, what will the spend be? How are you thinking through what the tactics would be and how would it come to life? You want to really have the best estimate of what that marketing plan would look like because any changes to that could, uh, you know, could affect the results of your bases too. And then depending on the company, some do have a product sample associated with it where consumers are able to try the sample and then some do not. And was this a single product or was this like a platform, a hydration platform that, that uh, you helped to create for L'Oreal? We ended up doing a platform. So I was working in skincare at the time. And you think about some of the skincare forms that, that live in a lineup. So you have, you know, you have your serum, you have your creams, you have your gels, but it, you know, it also made us think about some of those products differently. Um, you know, up until that point, skincare was really about reducing wrinkles. And when you shift the game and you say, hey, it's really about hydration now, that opens up new conversations to new formulas, new technologies, new experiences. So we were trying to think about it holistically. Right. No, that, that's, uh, I mean, and, and it's a really good insight because, uh, I mean, essentially the hydration uh, allows you to have less wrinkles also, right? So that's, yes. that's, that's yes. part of it. Uh, uh, so uh, very cool. That, that's, a, that's a great example. Um, you had mentioned that you had also worked on Clarisil, is that right? Yeah, so I worked... At RB, which um, at the time that I worked there was called RB, now it's called Reckitt. But I was working on base business for their personal care portfolio of products, and one of those brands was was Clearasil. And the challenge for us at that time was really turning around the business. You know, Clearasil was a heritage brand. It had actually been in decline for several years, and you know, it was a challenge for our team because we were you know, we had a small budget, we had very limited resources, and how could we turn around a business that had, uh, you know, a trend line of decline, uh, you know, with only small things kind of at our hands. Um, so what we did, we set our goals for the year, we laid out strategies, we knew that really to make a difference, the brand needed to be relevant again with a target audience. And with our small budget, we decided, okay, we're going to think about this differently. We are going to be content focused. We are going to be where Gen Z is, which to us was social media, and we need to do it in a scrappy way. So what we did, we created a bottoms up 
content approach. We used real people in our ads. We relied heavily on digitally driven tactics, and we constantly, constantly, constantly monitored our performance. In fact, I think we met every week to review how both the, you know, the media was performing versus our benchmarks and also how that was correlating to sales actually in market. And, and, and I think you can just tell from the tone that that is our favorite meeting of the week. Because <laughs> 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 right. it, it takes no time to prepare for those meetings and, and they're just jolly. So Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. But, you know, and they're real-time meetings, right? Um, oh, yeah. You know, often, <laughs> Often in business, you have time to think strategically, what am I going to say? What am I going to put together? It was a very different way of working. It was scrappy. It was real time. We were all reviewing the data together at the same time in the meeting and having real conversations and making real choices and just trying to really move as fast as we possibly could. Yeah, no, but, but I mean, I, I just, but I mean, in all seriousness, those are actually really incredibly helpful meetings. Uh, they do take a lot of effort to kind of prepare and, and also to develop the pivots. Uh, but in my own experience of working in, in programmatic uh, on, on the Polaris business, uh, actually uh, we were able to get uh, a program that, that was just from the, the, um, the, the video, basically the video and display uh, placements that we had, we were able to exponentially uh, improve the performance of the completed view rates on that just by having this iteration, weekly iteration and making improvements in terms of uh, the contextual targeting and, you know, looking at uh, DMAs uh, as, a, as another kind of layer cake of, of, of the targeting uh, for, for what we're doing. So, so it, it actually can be uh, quite useful and particularly nowadays with the, the fact that there is very little lag with a lot of the data that we get in terms of the, the performance, um, uh, whether it's of the media or, or, or of the sales, right? Because a lot of it is e-commerce. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really powerful. And, and so it's become, I would say, a lot more dynamic than it used to be um, even back when we were at P&G where, uh, yeah, I mean, you're doing this forecasting meetings, but I mean, it's still uh, a little bit abstracted, right? you know, and, and, and lagging. So Yes. And I mean, there have definitely been shifts in the industry and in how we think about data. But, you know, I would say this idea of moving to a constant optimization model, it's, it's obviously, you know, very effective. I've seen results firsthand in market, but it does require a shift in thinking of ways of working to be able to get there. And so, you know, for a lot of companies, you're not able to really make that adjustment overnight. Um, you know, I think on so it was a bit of a different case because like I said, we had low budget, low resources, and we were, you know, trying to make the best of what we had. And so it was, it was our best foot forward at the time. But for a lot of companies, they're not able to move into this, you know, this model right away. Right. So we, now we've covered both uh, base business and, and innovation. Uh, obviously, those are very important, uh, in, both in their own right. Uh, and I think any good marketer needs to know both of those areas, uh, uh, at least because, you know, uh, you, even if you're just working in innovation, I mean, eventually there is a handoff to the base business or to the commercialization team. So, so it's, uh, it's something that, that um, would, you, would you agree that, that uh, is really core to what a good marketer needs to know? A hundred percent. 
hundred percent. Um, you know, depending on the company, sometimes innovation and based business roles are, you know, they can be seen as two parts of marketing or they can be seen as part of the same structure, but either way, I think for a brand to be truly strong, you have to have strength in both areas. Right. And, and you can see the, the inverse of that, like whenever you have a R and D, uh, innovation pipeline, that's not, not really tied into what the the market will will want uh you get these uh, proliferation of just a multitude of of, of uh products that that uh, will have a very short life in the market <laughs> you know so yes. because they're yes. not they're not really uh they're not reading the, the lanes uh well um and they're not working closely together with business with with the base team so that, that's uh that's a very key point for for audiences that are that are looking at these type of roles as well. Yes, absolutely agree. Let's kind of go a little bit back into again into the innovation side of things. Um, how did you first become interested in innovation? Well, I probably should tell a story about my career, but when when I actually think about the first time I became interested in innovation, I have to say it was in my childhood. <laughs> so I'm going to share a couple of stories uh, from back in the day from my childhood. As a child, I I would say from a behavior standpoint, I always looked at things around me and I would see them not necessarily just for what they were, but for what they could be. And, um, you know, two examples come to mind for that. So first one is at the age of three, I remember going to my parents and telling them that for, you know, every birthday, every Christmas, every time that they were going to give me a gift, that I wanted them to buy me a Barbie. And not so I could play with it, but because I thought that one day it would be a collectible and it would be worth something. So, you know, so even at three years old, I didn't just see a toy as a toy. I, I saw it as an investment. Um, well, you were a mature kid. <laughs> well, you know, at three years old, what can I say? And then the second story I remember was actually when I was in first grade, I remember doing um, deliveries in my yard from our backyard garden to the back door of my parents' house. And, you know, I was delivering tomatoes from their garden. And what I would do, I would take my bike, I would pile all the tomatoes into a basket, and I would ride back and forth. And every time I would ride back and forth and ring the doorbell of their back door, I would charge them $1 per tomato. And, and <laughs> That is steep. Right, right. <laughs> Well, yeah, at the time it was really steep. And my parents, of course, thought this was like crazy. They thought it was an outrageous price. You know, they're like, we own the garden. Those are our tomatoes. Why, like, why do we have to pay you for it? It's just crazy. Well, you and, are, you, you, you are an innovator that you're like yes, the first Instacart. Enterprising, enterprising. <laughs> and their child. fees are about the, as high. So, <laughs> yes. You know, but the funny thing is I explained to them, I said, you know, the dollar isn't for the tomato. The dollar is for the delivery. So, you know, even in first grade, I saw some sort of added value in door-to-door -door delivery model. So, so that's my childhood. And, and that's how you became a millionaire. <laughs> tomato business. If I had only continued to develop there we go. after first grade. It doesn't really scale up though. After, after $10, they're like, all right, enough. <laughs> <laughs> Get to your room. Hard to scale up when you only have one bicycle too. I'm just there saying. <laughs> Great. So, in terms of just the innovation in uh, in your adult life, right? As, as a marketer, what were your what are your kind of favorite examples of um, 
things that you lo- that, that you helped a lot? Um, you know, it's it's so hard to pick just one example. When I think about my career and all the innovation that I've worked on, either either helping develop the products or helping to amplify them in market through base business. I would say there are really three examples that come to mind. One is Sargento, the second is OxyClean, and the third is Crest. So, you know, I can quickly touch on those. Um, the, The first one, of course, is near and dear to my heart right now, which is Sargento Balance Breaks Cheese and Crackers. You know, it's it's such an amazing example of the power of co-branding. It is our new snack kit lineup. It's in partnership with Mondelez International and it launched this year. Um, you know, essentially it's combining real natural cheese with your favorite crackers. We have four varieties in market and we have a very catchy ad campaign, by the way, so you have to check it out, Rafa. This has really led to some unbelievable results. And in fact, it, you know, it just continues to blow away all of our expectations in market. So, so you know, I'm, I'm living and breathing this one now, but that definitely makes my list of favorites. And then I would say my second favorite um, example would probably be OxyClean White Revive, which was a project I worked on in the new product development team when I was at Fabricare and Cleaners at Church and Dwight. And this is the new product. It got OxyClean into the coveted bleach section. So at the time, OxyClean was only shelved in additives. And so this launch helped them get secondary placement for the for the brand for the first time ever. And so that that was a pretty special moment. So that I would say that would be my number two. And then the third one that comes to mind is actually an example from early on in my career at PG, and that's Crest 3D White. And I remember there, you know, again, starting with the trend and the insight and how do you connect to consumers? And we identified a very meaningful consumer insight, which was that our target consumer wanted her beautiful smile, which she had worked so hard on to be noticed, which sounds, you know, maybe not so new at the time, but it was by whom was the new part. And it wasn't by the dentist, which was the category norm at the time. It was, she wanted you know, the people around her in her everyday to notice her beautiful smile. She wanted, you know, her friends and her family and and everyone to notice notice this like jewelry. And that's what led to the development of the Crest 3D White platform. And the, the mega property ended up living across toothpaste, floss, rinse, toothbrushes, and the team really ran with the idea of beautiful. We had products that made consumer smiles beautiful. We went to market for the first time like a beauty brand. And we we really built up the space into something very, very differentiated versus competition through a new campaign called Life Opens Up When You Do, which really spoke to these emotional benefits that she was looking for. So the launch, you know, it was super successful. It was an IRI pay setter. It became P&G's first ever billion-dollar mega property. But I would have to say what I remember most about working on the project was that, uh, you know, I remember listening into the, um, into Colgate's prediction of what was happening when they called into, into Wall Street. And I was listening what they were doing and they actually ended up bringing down their forecast and we ended up taking the category leadership position as the number one player. And I just remember at that time, everyone on the floor had a bell. And I remember all the bells just ringing, ringing, ringing at the news. And it was just, it was really special because 
you know, I knew that it was a team effort and without everybody on the floor, everybody who was ringing a bell, you know, we wouldn't have been able to achieve that. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, that's a fantastic story. Um, and also just wanted to touch on, uh, you know, you mentioned listening to uh, the investor call, uh, which I think that's a, that's a great practice that I also uh, tend to tend to do. Uh, not just for the company that you're working for, but then also for competition, because what ends up happen happening is that Wall Street analysts will call into uh, into that uh, session, and invariably the the CMO or the CEO or the COO or the CFO will say something that they that is really not generally made public, uh, even in, in in other kind of journalistic outlets. It's just kind of lives in that in that forum because that's not really for investors but it's extremely valuable if you're a marketer because you can catch some insights about uh, uh, some of the things that are uh, you know maybe coming down the pipeline or, or changes to their strategy or like you said uh, their um, uh, their forecast uh, which obviously uh, certainly was impacted it seems like by uh, by the success of crest at the time so so that that's a you know very good uh, you know very good practice um, uh, for everybody to uh, to do when when they're in their role. Agree. It's it's a really great source for competitive intelligence. Absolutely. So um, so I wanted to go back to uh, your your role at Sargenta. So you're the marketing director at, at Sargenta. So so tell us a little bit about um, what that role is like and the types of issues that that you that you deal with currently yes well i have to say this last year has been a very different kind of year for sargento um you know i've essentially been managing an essential food business through a global pandemic and it has definitely come with its challenges the the market dynamics have have changed and shifted consumer thinking and behaviors have shifted you know shopping behaviors change time at home change time of family change all of these things change and have really impacted the way consumers are thinking about products and how they're thinking about purchases but you know despite all of that sargento has been able to really stay nimble and pivot our plans in real time and the results honestly they they really reflect um that agility because the results are very strong. In fact, this year we became the number one natural cheese brand taking away the leadership position from Kraft for the very first time. So it is, you know, it's really um, a very, very exciting time at the company right now. Wow, congratulations. That, that, Thank that is, you. That is big news. Thank you so much. Um, and the other thing that I would mention about Sargento is, you know, Sargento is a values-based company, which is one of the things that attracted me to come here. And we really do live our values every day. And one of those values is giving back to the community. And when I think about giving back to the community, just in the last three years alone, Sargento has donated more than five million pounds of cheese to, um, you know, to food banks. And it, it's pretty unbelievable. Wow. That's a lot of cheddar. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of cheese. Absolutely. Very cool. Um, anything else in terms of uh, Sargento that that, uh, that you're working on that, that you wanted to share uh, with us? Well, I've already talked a little bit about our Balance Breaks Cheese and Crackers, which is, uh, you know, like I said uh, earlier, just blowing all of our expectations out of the water. It continues to pour perform very strong. And we're just really excited to see where that one goes. Fantastic. So um, just pivoting a bit, uh, 
this is obviously a question that I ask every guest, uh, and that is, what have you read, uh, seen? It could be a movie, it could be a TV show, uh, or you know, it could be a piece of art uh, recently that uh, has inspired you. Inspiration. Where does my inspiration come from? Uh, well, I would say, Rafa, for me, I have always been um, most inspired by real life industry examples. Uh, I would say, you know, similar to how this podcast is by marketers for marketers, I love being able to attend marketing events and just hearing directly from the brands who experience something firsthand. And I feel those are really, to me, the richest stories for learning. So those are the events that I, you know, I gravitate toward, but those events um, are a bit different now because most of them are virtual versus in-person, but the content is still, it's still really, really great. And I, I recently attended a virtual event for ANA. I also attended um, some virtual events for brand innovators. I think the most recent one was called Behind the Brands. And, and I know since we're both uh, you know, P&G alumni. I know the P&G alumni event is coming up soon in November, and I think that should be a great one. Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, that's uh, the. It's an annual conference. It's the the 2021 P&G Alumni Global Conference, which typically uh, takes place uh, in a fabulous <laughs> international venue. Uh, this year, uh, we're going back uh, home to Cincinnati to the headquarters uh, for P&G and. Actually, in this case, our our conference is typically just open to the alums, but now it's also open to friends of alums. So, what we'll do on on the descriptor for the for the podcast, uh, since we're both PNG uh, alums, and uh, you know we want anybody that's uh, uh, listening to the podcast to be able to attend. So, we'll have a link for for that event, and that's happening uh, November twelfth through the thirteenth, and it's uh, just really powerhouse. Uh, speakers and interactions uh, with uh, other, not just uh, marketers, but, um, you know, really the, the entire uh, kind of value chain of, of, uh, of teams that, that, that work in, in brand. I think it's going to be a really great event. I, you know, I know I've loved attending some local P&G alumni events when I was in Cincinnati and when I was in Chicago. I've personally never had a chance to attend the global conference. But this year, because it is virtual, I, you know, I'm pretty excited uh, to be there. And I know they have a really strong uh, speaker lineup. So I think it'll be a really great event. Actually, I think the last one that they had uh, at a, like a physical venue was uh, in Spain. And uh, unfortunately, I missed that one, but uh, <laughs> that would have been terrific. So I think what, what a lot of people do these days is they, they basically plan a vacation around <laughs> around yes. that event so uh because what happens is this you go to to this event uh you know whether it's in spain or italy and and then because uh the the level of of attendee that that, that is at these things they they have uh access to vip experiences not, not just in the conference but then outside like let's say you know you go to the to the coliseum and you have a private tour or you go to you have a private tour of the vatican i mean it's just incredible the types of opportunities that, that kind of get generated from through these events. So uh, definitely encourage everybody to check it out. So I wanted to also just ask you uh, in terms of, you know, we're talking about uh, inspiration and what, what your, you know, the things that, that, that are uh, really, uh, you know, making an impact for you. Uh, w one of the things that, that, that for me is uh, really key as a, in terms of your marketing career is to ha have a strong um, network, right? 
So can you talk a little bit about how that, that has kind of taken shape for you in your own career? Yeah, um, happy to do that. You know, when I think about mentoring, just in general, I, I would encourage everyone, first of all, if you don't have a mentor, this is definitely something that you should look into. Early on in my career at P&G, I know we had a formal mentor program and I was assigned a, you know, a formal mentor. It was a very structured program, very helpful. I would say, you know, as my career has progressed, my thinking about mentors has, has also evolved a bit. And now I've really pulled together what I'm calling my uh, personal board of directors, <laughs> which, <laughs> which essentially, you know, it's got three pillars. And, and the first one definitely is mentors. But then there's a second and third pillar. And the second pillar is role models. And the third pillar is advocates. And, um, you know, just a brief description of those three pillars. For me, mentors should be people who, you know, who are, are really transparent with you, who are really trustworthy, who are those go-to people that you can depend on to give you a truthful, honest answer when you're, when you're going through really tough conversations. And then the second bucket role models, for me, those should be people who you admire. They're typically at a level, you know, one or two levels above you who can show you what a potential future path could look like and what it takes to really get there and give you advice in that bucket. And, and, and are those third, people that, that have like a, that you have a personal relationship with, or are these more like people that, that, that are kind of in, in the media and and that you look up to? Well, I think it could be different for different people. Definitely there's a, you know, a media, social media aspect to it where you see behaviors, you see thought leaders on social media. And I think that could be a source of inspiration as a type of role model. But I would also encourage people to have a role model that is more tangible, that that you can see, okay, what did their career path look like? How did they get there? What are some of the steps that they took? And be able to have, uh, you know, more uh, real-time conversation, somebody that you have access to. Right. And, and then the third bucket that I mentioned was advocates. And to me, those are people who know your work, who can speak to your work, who, you know, when, when they go into a meeting or even a career planning session, those are the people who can really advocate for you. I would say that last one is probably one of the most important ones and probably overlooked ones <laughs> because there's so many meetings that, that happen when you're not there and, and you need to have, uh, you, you need to have those folks kind of in, in, uh, in play uh, to really, um, you know, serve, serve serve your your career progress uh, in those in those rooms so yes and when you think about some of the more you know formal versus informal advice several companies have formal mentor mentor programs you know and I mentioned I had one at PNG but again that's only one of three pillars and you know to your point pillar two and three are often, as important or even more important. So you have to really think about it more holistically. Absolutely. And so I think that's a good pivot just uh, in terms of, you know, for folks that are starting their careers in, in marketing, uh, which, uh, you know, a, a lot of our listeners are in, in that space where they're just starting those careers. What, what are, what is some advice that you can share with them as they go forward? Well, we, we recently had a new team member join our snacks team here at Sargento. So I would say this is pretty top of mind for me. I feel like I've been giving this some thought lately. And there are really three pieces of advice that I would share with new marketers. The first is really have fun. <laughs> 
know that sounds so basic, um, <laughs> but really have fun and take assignments that you are passionate about. There are so many other things happening in the world, a lot of other stressors. Just make fun, make sure that you can find a fun assignment. Yeah. And fun is what you make of it too. I mean, like it, it's yes. not, not everything is fun, but I mean, it's also, I think the attitude that you bring to it as well. Um, Cause I mean, I, I know folks that, that, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've been in situations where I'm doing the exact same task that somebody else is doing and they're complaining about it and I'm liking it. <laughs> so, so it, it's, um, you know, so I think it's not just the activity, it's also the mindset. So try to try to bring positivity to what you're doing. Yes. A hundred percent. And culture can play a big part, part in that too. Absolutely. And I would say the second piece of advice is really about work family and, you know, it's, it's so important to find a great work family, you know, and I mentioned earlier in our conversations, that was one of the reasons why I stopped consulting and I went back into CPG because I miss my work family, but it's so important to find a good work family, because when you think about it, we often spend as much time with the people we work with as we do our actual families. That's true. That's true. And then the final piece of advice I would have is just um, you know, not to give up on, on your goals. And when I was younger, my dad would always ask me when I was going through, you know, a tough time and, and wanted to give up on something, he would say, you know, are you a pine knot or, or are you weak as a willow? Tough <laughs> as a pine knot or weak as a willow. And, you know, I think this was his kind of tough love way of telling me that if something is really, really important to me, I shouldn't be discouraged uh, you know, I shouldn't want to give up. Instead, you know, just stay strong and stay focused. If it's really meaningful to, to you, find a way to charge ahead and just be resilient. That's right. And then uh, right after he said that, you threw a tomato at him. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I was a child, I may have cried too. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Well, and I mean, I think the, the resilient, the is, I mean, I think the resilient piece is so important. Um, I remember when, uh, and this is uh, some years ago, uh, listening to Tony Robbins uh, talk, uh, give, give a talk. And one of the things he said was, uh, the past does not equal the future. So uh, you know, just because you you failed at something or, or something was tough doesn't mean that that you're not gonna be able to overcome it. So if you just have that belief, and sometimes that that belief seems like, oh, okay, that's unrealistic. No, no, but it, it is. That's why it's a belief. You have to really uh, push past uh, uh, those doubts. Um, I think that's that's really um, the thing that 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 will get you through those tough times. Uh, you know, every every single time. I mean, because you know, the, the sun will, will rise the next day. So it's just a matter of what are you going to do to be ready for that challenge? I love that. Well, thank you. That, that was great advice. Really, uh, I enjoyed this conversation really very much. Uh, and I hope you did as well. Rafa, I, again, thank you so much for having me as part of your podcast. This has been such a great experience. I hope the information is also helpful to your to your audience, to your listeners. And again, thank you. Great. No, it, it has been, I hope, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, and, I, and everybody, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Working Media. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe uh, to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And also share the podcast uh, with other marketers. This is uh, Rafael Bracero signing off until next time. Thank you so much.